and away we go. Hello, and welcome to the Cut the Cord podcast, episode 30. I'm Amanda, and I'm joined by some other streaming media nerds. Hannah. Hello. Ryan. Hailing frequencies open. And Chris. One to transport. Oh my god. <laughs> what are you guys, nerds or something? <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> Affirmative. <laughs> Together we take on television for those who have cast off the tyranny of their local cable provider. Each week we gather here to find a great show to watch from the often overwhelming variety of shows to choose from. We review the prior week's selection, then we pick a new show and do it all over again. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. We are trying to keep major spoilers within a segment we are calling tentatively the spoiler zone. Is that still a thing we want to do? Yeah. Spoilers mostly confined to the spoiler zone. This week's show is a CBS All Access original series, Star Trek Discovery. Bum, bum, bum. Does anyone want to comment on that, on the fact that it exists? CBS All Access exists? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that this show exists and that it is on a CBS streaming service. I was really nervous about the quality of the show, especially because they weren't releasing pre-viewings yeah. for critics, but I've been extremely satisfied. So our companion song is the theme song, and it is by Jeff Russo. What did you guys think about the theme song? Some of you have some more musical training than I do, but just as a layman, I really like it because it's different than what I'm expecting, but then right at the end, it kind of hits you with those familiar notes that you know. And just that opening title sequence is pretty amazing looking mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah it was visually wonderful it feels just enough like a star trek song but it's it's still different it's still its own thing yeah it feels like it's playing on those themes but not being confined by them yeah it kind of has the chime like things and then of course the horn yeah and then at mm-hmm. the end you get that musical sense like you're flying off to an adventure so i thought it was pretty good yeah. <laughs> Are we going to have to pay royalties for a humming? <laughs> Go get your Vuvuzela and see if you can recreate. For God's sakes, no. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> don't encourage her. We don't encourage bad behavior. That's still maybe my favorite moment that's ever happened on this <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, the music in this show is by Jeff Russo, and let's take a quick listen. So this show was created by Brian Fuller of Dead Like Me, Hannibal, American Gods, and closest to my heart, Pushing Daisies fame, RIP, and Alex Kurtzman of Transformers, Amazing Spider-Man 2, and The Mummy. Interestingly, Fuller actually stepped down as showrunner last year due to apparently other commitments. There doesn't seem to be any weird bad blood there, but who knows? That's good. And both... Brian Fuller and Alex Kurtzman were writers on Deep Space Nine and Next Generation. So they do have some tie-ins to the Star Trek. They didn't just pluck them out of nowhere. Uh, okay. Oh, nice. They didn't just grab a, oh, say, J.J. Abrams either. <laughs> 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 that Star Trek universe is cool, too. Yeah, in its own and way. That brings up kind of a good point that this is set in the original TV series and original movie continuity, that this is not part of the new movies universe. Yes, because those movies created a separate timeline through various events. Who sounds like the nerd now? <laughs> and we are not in that. Mm-hmm. 
those uh-huh. are the ones I've actually seen, unlike most of the TV <laughs> series. So the cast is led by Sonequa Martin-Green as Michael Burnham. She's known mainly for The Walking Dead, and her character follows a Brian Fuller tradition of being a female character with a traditionally male name, a la Chuck uh, from Pushing Daisies. Oh, yeah. It's a thing he does for some reason. We're also starring Michelle Yeoh as Captain Philippa Georgiou. 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 I think is how you pronounce that. And she was in, most famously, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I thought she was wonderful in this role. She's fabulous. I loved her. She's a fabulous actor. She really has a lot of gravitas to her. She does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's completely convincing as someone who captains an entire starship. We have Doug Jones as Saru, who is a science officer and a Kelpine which is apparently a new species invented for this series. Their whole deal is that they were a prey species that Mm -hmm. is sort of now characterized by their cowardice and also their ability to sense danger and death. Specifically death. Like he's like, death is coming and does a little with his little. Yeah, he's got little frills or something on the side of his neck that kind of pop out. Frills. Yes, that's a good. Yes. His little alert frills whenever he senses something coming. I think they really hit a home run on this character. I think the design is amazing. Like, he looks slightly Mm -hmm. inhuman when he speaks. He has noises he makes Mm -hmm. that aren't quite human noises. But the character in its own way, just like all good, these kind of Spock, Data, what does it mean to be human characters? He is also very human at his core, too. His core humanity. Oh, yeah. I liked him. He and our main character, Michael, both have a little bit of the same struggle between their heritage, which is not really human, and being amongst humans and having those expectations. Yeah, Michael was raised by Vulcans as a human. Which a lot of people, I think, who are uh, invested in the Star Trek canon, like major fans, are a little upset that they've shoehorned in the fact that Michael was raised by Spock's parents, his Vulcan father and human mother. Ryan, as resident superfan, are you offended by this. I'm not offended by it, but I don't think it was necessary. If she had been raised by another you know, member of the Vulcan Science Academy or something to that effect, he would have the same thing. It does raise questions as to why Spock hasn't mentioned his sister that he presumably grew up right. with. Although she is a mutineer and traitor, right. Right. that might explain it a little bit. It would have been like, oh, you're her brother? How do we trust you kind of deal? So I think they made things more complicated yeah. than they needed to. Mm-hmm. I could have just been a Vulcan. I think the Vulcan angle is a good one because it's almost the reverse of Spock's situation. Mm-hmm. But I don't think they needed to tie it into that so directly. What are Vulcan lifespans like? They live longer than humans do, but not incredibly long. So there's a potential that he could have already been like grown and out on his own by the time his father found her. Well, this ties into the cage a little bit, which is the original... God, I sound like a geek. <laughs> <laughs> If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck. Yeah, I'm just going to pretend that you're talking about your religion and kind of take the same, like, oh, wow, okay. So the cage is the original pilot for Star Trek, which bears almost no resemblance to Star Trek. And in that, Spock is mm-hmm. in that, still as, you know, an officer on the bridge. And that takes place roughly around this time period. Hmm. Ten okay. years before. Like, the cage is almost like a prequel to the original series. It's got where Captain Pike is from. Captain Pike, who we see in the first of the modern Star Trek movies. So as has kind of been pointed out right here, some <laughs> of us have some experience with Star Trek and some of us don't. Some of us, it would be fair to say, have less experience. <laughs> you don't literally have a Star Trek communicator <laughs> tattoo on your chest like I do? <laughs> Jesus. Oh, shit. I forgot about that, Ryan. Wait, do you really? Yes, I really do. <laughs> 
have oh, a communicator wow. uh, badge tattooed oh, over my man. heart that says boldly go. So. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. Do you speak any Klingon? <laughs> no, no Klingon. I mean, he might now. We heard enough of it in, in the first episode. True. There's so much Klingon. Oh, we'll get to that. Like, Jesus, so much Klingon. <laughs> I mean, I know we were supposed to be getting vital information about their motives and the plan there, those scenes, but I found myself <clears throat> drifting every time it was a Klingon scene. Yeah, and I like foreign movies where I read subtitles. It was just something about the guttural Klingon. Yeah, once you've heard it for about three or four minutes, it kind of starts to grade on you. Mm. Yeah. In most cases, we see Klingons, when they're speaking, they're saying very short sentences. You're going to die now for honor, for death, like those kind of things, like very short. Mm -hmm. And here they're having long, complex sentences and conversations amongst themselves. So there's no other language to break it up. I kind of wish that they'd done a little bit of a hunt for Red October with that. I mean, it's cheesy, but like it would have made it a lot more watchable. Oh, where they like start speaking Klingon and then it just like kind of transitions into English. I really like that it was all in Klingon. (laughs) Yeah, you would. Because there's no reason for them to speak anything but Klingon amongst themselves. Yes. You guys, this episode is going to turn into just all of us bullying Ryan. (laughs) get where you're coming from i mean it would have been like if they weren't speaking quinya and cinder and and, um, lord of the rings i get you there it's just not not a language i really want to hear a lot of it's not a pretty language i'll give you that the klingons themselves are also a little weird hard to handle i mean visually the prosthetics on their faces are more elaborate and more face obscuring than they have ever been before at least to my knowledge yeah that was a controversial change that I i remember being a little like i don't know i mean i got used to it i don't know i thought it looked cool you know they don't look like warf i thought it looked cool but at the same time in my head i was kind of comparing them to other klingons from the rest of the canon i mean we already had a big thing with having to explain why klingons in next generation look different than they do in the original series and now we're going a little further back in time and they look even different than that so you're kind of raising questions i don't know if you necessarily needed to add in to it so i don't think the design is bad i just think at the time that it's set and it it's raises questions that will complicate things mm-hmm. don't fix what ain't broken you know like just kind of mm-hmm. go with the thing that's already been established yeah It makes them even harder to relate to, I think, when they have so little of the actors have so little of their human faces showing. It's hard to express, to do like facial expressions and Mm -hmm. to have all those cues that we rely on to like identify with a character. That might be an intentional design. Which I guess is part of their alienness. Yeah. Yeah. Right intentionality yes i get it but for me the best when you have a war plot it's good to be able to see both sides to be able to identify with both sides and the deliberate alienness of the klingons and i also felt like the whole culture and the rationale for going to war was also a little bit one note and hard to identify with i felt that they really nailed the klingons here and they did a lot of things with them that were interesting to me they had things with racism that were amongst the klingons Mm -hmm. Their religion played Mm -hmm. a huge factor in what was going on. Right. Their new leader is sort of a messiah figure, Tukuvma. Yes. Yes. And the internal politics. Yeah, I mean, that was interesting. I just, as a race, I didn't understand their grievances. Maybe that's because I don't have context because I'm not like a Star Trek fan so much. I kind of have a theory about that, which is a little spoilery, and we can talk about that later, but I feel like there is kind of a connection. When we get into the spoiler zones, we can present our theories as to the causes of the Klingon aggression. But anyway, as far as the makeup goes, I'm 
okay with a new Klingon look as long as they don't have any weird, uncanny valley Klingon children. Oh my god. <laughs> like the flashbacks of the Klingon teenagers, or are you referencing something else? Worf's son it's... was just... Alexander, yes. Oh. I don't know, just the Klingon makeup on a child was just really weird. We'll get into some of the plot stuff in a minute, but there's a point where you kind of shift. We've talked about the people who are on the Shinjo because the first ship. Mm-hmm. Then there's other crewmates we meet on board the actual Discovery. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. It was a pretty bold move that this show took to create kind of a two episode pilot that then completely yeah. reboots itself after the second episode between the second and third. We get almost an entirely new cast of characters. Not entirely, but a lot of the people who we assume are going to be major characters through the rest of the show are just not in the first two episodes at all. Right. Yes. And I really liked that transition. I thought plot-wise it worked. It's definitely not typical Star Trek, but I feel like that break from it was okay. It's refreshing to not follow the captain. Yeah. It was interesting, but at the same time, it was kind of a tone shift, which I mm-hmm. thought was a little bit yep. weird. It was. I think each episode has its own very distinct tone yeah. to it. Well, the first two I thought felt more cohesively like almost like one big movie launching the series. And then the third one stood out as its own hugely different thing. And in particular, uh, I believe we were going through the cast and we were just about to get to uh, Mary Wiseman as Michael's roommate. She doesn't appear until the third episode and she's basically supposed to be the not necessarily comedy relief, but more like human relatable character. The heart of the show. And it's kind of late to introduce that character. Well, from our perspective, it's late because we're only seeing the first three episodes. Oh, we should have said that up front that we're going to be covering the first three episodes of Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, because the other ones are not released yet. But yeah, I was kind of just mostly irritated by her. (laughs) (laughs) I see what they're trying to do with her. She's just not terribly compelling at this point. To me, it just feels like she shouldn't be on this show. It feels like she came from a different show. It seems like, and this is maybe hitting a little bit of like spoiler territory, but the people on the Discovery were chosen for very specific reasons for a very particular mission and all seem to have kind of the same outlook. And she is ambitious. Like she does want to become a Starfleet captain. So maybe we'll see more of that, but she seems a little too starry-eyed to really function on the Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. And just really immature. It's like, why do you have a 16-year-old here? I don't know what's going on with this character. Yeah, she is supposed to be younger than everyone else. She hasn't graduated from the academy yet. She's a senior. Oh, oh, okay. That makes sense. She's in her senior year at the... At Starfleet Academy, yeah. Okay. How old are they then? 21, 22. Like college, I guess. But then everyone in Star Trek is always a child prodigy, so she probably is younger than that. She's like an older Wesley. <laughs> There's a ginger. <laughs> oh my God. Her hair. There's one shot near the end of the third episode where she legit looks like a still from Brave. Her hair oh, is yeah. just like billowing around her. Giant curls. It's magnificent. Before we go into the rest of the cast, do we want to go over the plot a little bit? Yes, because the change of it is a major part of the plot. So we'll save the Discovery crew for after. So we have Michael Burnham, who we already said she was raised on Vulcan after an attack by the Klingons, which that's not a spoiler, is it? That's in the first episode. Yeah. I don't think that's a big spoiler. Oh, and she's Um, black. Yay, diversity. Oh, yeah. And, right, this show is very casually diverse. Very. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, female captain. She's Chinese. The main Mm -hmm. character is a black woman. Yep. There's a redhead. There's a gay character later on. That's in the grand tradition of Star Trek. Yep. I mean, Gene Roddenberry initially made the crew and the bridge officers diverse. Yeah. You know, he wanted to show a future where people make it and... 
cooperate yeah. with each other. And that the way that we made it was by cooperating. Mm-hmm. So yep. people who are freaking out that this is, you know, Star Trek has been turned over to like the social justice warriors. You don't know shit. <laughs> like, where have y'all been? Yeah, it's always been this way. Yes, ever since Uhura and Sulu. Mm-hmm. Don't forget like Chekhov, who is a Russian. Yeah, at the height of the Cold War, they put a Russian on the bridge. I was hoping that they were going to put somebody on the bridge who's a American enemy. To show that it's that all that is behind us. I mean, yeah, it's Chinese. But yeah. I mean, she's a Chinese actress, but her name in the show is French. That sort of represents, I guess, more of a like cultural. Like a world culture. So we have the USS Shenzhou, which is captained by uh, Philippa Giorgio. They are sent out to repair a damaged relay, which... They don't know why it was damaged. They suspect foul play, but they're not entirely sure. And in the process, they encounter Klingons, which no one has seen a Klingon for a really long time, despite the fact that apparently Michael's parents were killed by Klingons. How does that work out? Time with them. It's just been a cold war. They're like the things in the shadows. They're like the Reavers and Firefly. They, you hear about attacks on the Outer Rim, and but the, to the people in the core, they're just fairy tales. That's a really good example. Yeah. So unbeknownst to the Federation, the Klingons have this new, or at least one, I guess one of the houses of the Klingons has this new leader who considers himself a rebirth of their god. His name is Tukuvma. That's never good. Yeah, that's always kind of destined to end badly. His goal is to gather the 24 houses of the Klingon species and unite them in war against the Federation. And so to do that, they have presumably broken this relay on purpose, lured a ship there in order to attack them and start a war. Yeah, they're basically forcing a conflict. Not only a conflict with the Federation, but a conflict which the Klingons will be forced to answer as well. Right. And there's a question around whether or not Takuvma is also trying to martyr himself in order to set himself up as like a figurehead or something to avenge. Burnham specifically accidentally kills a a Klingon guardian, which also you get the sense that that was engineered. That's what they wanted in the first place. Yeah. I mean, he swung first, I believe. Yes, he attacked her first. Things escalate. Burnham gets some interesting advice from her foster father about the way that the Vulcans at one point had managed to negotiate peace with the Klingons. His advice to her, or not, he doesn't really give it to her as advice. He just gives it to her as here's what we did, was to intimidate the Klingons and earn their respect through violence by attacking preemptively, which is totally against the Federation's, against Starfleet's principles. Yeah, and that kind of comes up as a running theme in these first couple episodes is, is it worthwhile to violate protocol and violate even ethics in pursuit of victory? Right. The ends justify the means. Mm-hmm. That encounter between them, it's also the name of the first episode, is the Vulcan Hello, right. is what it's known as. <laughs> it really is an interesting question. That's how I knew we were in good Star Trek and that it made me think about something. It mm-hmm. did not present an easy answer. Dark right. Star Trek. <laughs> right, because it did work for the Vulcans. Yeah, I guess it's the same principle of kicking somebody's ass your first day in prison. Right. Yeah. yeah. Their whole point of this, they encounter the Klingons, they don't fire first the Klingons attack them and then their response is logically if the Klingons are going to attack you you therefore are in the moral right to attack first and they do every time they encounter them they immediately open fire with you know overwhelming force and this eventually forces the Klingons to the bargaining table like there is their goal is not to wipe out the Klingons and the violence isn't the goal it's the tool they're using to get to where they want to go. Right. They're speaking the Klingon's language. It's kind of like Minority Report. If you know in advance that the crime is going to happen, 
is it justified to arrest that person before they actually commit the crime? Pre-crime. So there's this standoff between these two ships, between the Shinzo and the Klingon death ship. Right. At this point, we just have the one Klingon ship and the one Federation ship, the Shinzo. So uh, before we move on, should we enter into uh, the spoiler zone? Sure. Yeah, I think we've set up the stage and now we should talk about the resolution. So yeah. Yeah, I think this is... Do we have a sit guitar riff for Spoiler Zone? Mm, I got to make it kind of like horn-ish, right? Because it's Star Trek. So like, Spoiler Zone. No, that sucked. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's consider ourselves inside the Spoiler Zone now. Inside. We're in the Spoiler Zone now, guys. Oh, thanks for beaming us in. <laughs> Welcome to the spoiler zone, Chris. So we're still in a standoff. Burnham is now trying to, Michael Burnham, is still trying to uh, convince the captain that they should do this thing, that they should do this ethically dubious thing. Captain says no, and they go into a private room to argue about it. And Burnham takes the radical step of using the Vulcan nerve pinch, that's what that's called, right? Yeah. To knock out her captain, which is a... An act of mutiny. That's mutiny. Yeah. Huge no. Oh, yeah. Very bad. She attacked her superior officer. Big deal. She then goes in and lies to the rest of the crew because now she's the ranking officer now that the captain is elsewhere. The rest of the crew and tells them to fire on the Klingons. I like that the natural suspicion that the science officer has. Yes. Yes, Saru knows. You know, due to his heritage, she's like, this is not right. (laughs) Where did Mm -hmm. she go? She's not on a call. Come on now. But before they can, the captain recovers and runs back in the room and says, no, don't belay that order. And has her phaser out with a look that says, I will end you right now (laughs) if I need to. Despite the fact that we have, until this moment, the show has taken pains to show us the sort of intimate and almost kind of maternal kind of mentory relationship that these yeah. two women have had. Yeah. The captain, Captain Giorgio, has taken special interest in Michael because she knows about her upbringing. She knows that she's going to have trouble reintegrating into human society. And she takes her on as a special project at the request of her adopted father. She was grooming her for a captaincy in Star Yes. So the betrayal is all the worse. Multiple levels. And the fact that Giorgio doesn't forgive Burnham for what she did. She doesn't like pretend it didn't happen. She doesn't sort of sweep it under the rug. She follows protocol. She points a phaser at her sends her to the brig. Yep. And while this is all going on, the Klingons uh, have been talking about lighting the beacon that they need a torchbearer. This is all like religious significance for them. Yes. They've got their torchbearer and they light the beacon, which is essentially a new star in the sky that erupts and almost to say the ship until they're able to compensate for it and that's when i thought this was an amazing scene where all of the klingon ships from the their clan start arriving Mm -hmm. and start warping oh yeah that was pretty breathtaking that was good pretty awesome and very intimidating yes (laughs) and then the federation ships show up and now you've got from two ships to probably 60 Mm -hmm. or so ships so now we have a giant fleet on both sides and so pretty quickly after the rest of the federation shows up the klingons attack they start firing and almost immediately the Shinjo sustains hull damage which leads Burnham to be in a fairly difficult situation she's in a predicament yes 
I like that space battle. I enjoyed it very much because it really pointed out how dangerous space is and that everything there wants you oh, yeah. dead. That it is exceptionally dangerous. And I just, I really enjoyed mm-hmm. it. The default for space is dead. I also liked that when explosions were taking place in space, you didn't hear anything. Oh, I liked yeah. That oh yeah. And yet it still got across the violent aspect of those explosions. Mm-hmm. It was a little weird how like people were getting electrocuted at their station, even though the hit wasn't necessarily nearby. That's standard Star oh, Trek. Yeah. Every <laughs> panel explodes and throws you to the ground in every battle. What does uh, Will Wheaton call it when they do that? Like the Star Trek shuffle or something like that? When they all kind of like shift back and forth together? In the original <laughs> Star Trek, correct me if I'm wrong on this one, Ryan, they just kind of threw themselves around. And so you get this awesome <laughs> yes. people overdoing it and underdoing it or going in the wrong Oh, direction yeah. like so cheesy i will tell you if you go back and watch the original series you're gonna see some great sci-fi but you're also gonna see a bunch of space hippies you're gonna see a lot of go-go dancing <laughs> yes. like the show is definitely has some parts in it that are it's in the 60s yes it was the 60s it's a product of its time <laughs> this battle scene is rad because it gives you the scope of star trek but it also puts you in a situation with michael in the brig that's very personal vulnerable tense that's happening at the same time juxtaposed yes so it zooms in and out of the scale of Mm -hmm. what you're looking at and it's pretty great since we're in the spoiler zone that also applies to the fungus technology that they bring up way later in episode three which presumably in the future series not everything is powered by fungus teleport well i mean maybe there's a canon reason for that though so maybe it doesn't work Yeah, maybe there's some huge problem with it that hasn't been revealed yet. Yeah, something very bad happens. It makes the Borg, you guys. I don't know. No, no. Borg are older and far, far away. (laughs) (laughs) Until Q takes the Enterprise and throws it into that quadrant, the Borg aren't aware of the existence of the Alpha Quadrant. And then... The Borg, that was fucking Q. Shit. Oh, really? It's Q's fault that the Borg know Mm -hmm. about people? Yep. He tells them that they're basically not ready for space. And that there are things very dangerous for them. And he throws them to the Borg to encounter them and they get away wow. and warp back to their quadrant. And that's when the Borg start coming across them. Ugh, what an asshole. He kind of sets it up as you need to clear this hurdle. You need to be able to survive the Borg or you're not going any further. Dang, that's harsh. Douche. He's kind of a douchebag god. That's his whole shtick. So let's talk about that scene with Michael in the brig. So Michael's trapped in the brig. The the force field around her, the only thing that's keeping the air in, is going to fail in like eight minutes. Because power's being diverted to more essential areas of the ship. The computer is refusing to engage the ethical protocols that would allow her to leave the jail cell that she's in. Right, because the computer basically says it won't make any difference if it does so if it won't make a difference it won't use the protocol we want to talk about how she resolves that i don't want to go into all the points that she raises but she basically takes it through like if then statements Mm -hmm. with the computer to make it realize should engage the protocols it's really interesting yeah it's kind of a human versus ai and humanity kind of i robot sort of dialogue it's like a how do you negotiate with a computer very much like a 2001 space odyssey like i need you to open the door you know i can't do that michael (laughs) and her name is michael i think that that is what they're going for there it's also her showing off her vulcan logic she outlogics the computer it's a great juxtaposition of action with 
having to think your way out of a problem. Like there's punching, space punching, <laughs> then there's logic. Yeah. Well, it's very Asimov. I mean, aside from 2001, I mean, he also wrote iRobot, which is essentially a very long three-part dialogue on how to get the AI to subvert the three laws of robotics. She runs back up to the bridge. And at this point, by this point, the Shinzo has already been rescued by the Europa, which has a Starfleet Admiral on it. And it swoops in at the last minute to save them from crashing. They're being pulled in by the gravity of the stars and they're going to crash into something. So yay, saved. Deus Ex Tractor Beam. Yes. There's a couple of those in this series. Well, it's like they literally like go into the light, like the ship appears and then pulls them in. And there's this, you know, bright beam of light that pulls them out. You almost want like an angelic chorus to like sound at that moment. After the battle, we get more of these kind of ethical dilemmas that are going on. Before the battle is even over, we have, there's that moment when the Admiral holographs in to the Klingon ship and says, all right, let's stop. This is dumb. Parlay. Uh, ceasefire. And they're like, yes, yes. All right, that's fine. We've lost a lot of people. We're sending our envoy. We'll be there soon. And it turns out that what they meant by we'll be there soon is our invisible cloaked giant flagship is going to plow into your ship. Ram you. Right. So, and there are thousands of people on that ship, including a very high-ranking Starfleet officer that then perish in a fiery blast. But they self-destruct and take the Klingon ship with them. Parts of it, yeah. So, war crime number one. The plan now is for Burnham, who has escaped the brig and has run back up to the bridge and now, for some reason, Giorgio is like, okay, you can help. I mean, they are in a drastic situation. They're outgunned and they basically have no no way to escape. And they're disabled. Their hull is so brief. I'm assuming they can't go to warp or anything. And Giorgio wants some serious revenge. She turns a corner, things change for her real fast. She's initially willing to sacrifice herself to take out this leader, but Burnham points out that that's a really bad idea because that's what he wants probably. That'll just give them even more reason to carry on a war. So the new plan is we're going to go onto the ship and capture him and bring him back and show that he can be defeated. Right. Because then he'll be a disgrace because he allowed himself to be captured. Right. So he doesn't become a symbol. So this is a good plan, but then the way they figure out how to execute said plan is problematic to say the least it's a good plan and it goes real bad yeah they come up with a clever solution to not being able to fire photon torpedoes but it's not clever it's a war crime Do we want to detail how that is? They notice that they are beaming all of the dead Klingons back onto the ship. And so they teleport a photon torpedo inside of a Klingon body. And then that gets beamed up into the Klingon ship and explodes. And that is a war crime. It's two war crimes in one, actually. It is a war crime to destroy the dead of your opponent. To desecrate the dead, yeah. And it's a definitely a war crime to booby trap the dead or anything medical or a hospital or anything like that. So Tacumba earlier in the series says that the Federation, whenever they arrive, you know they're about to basically kill you because they always have the great lie that he calls it, which is we come in peace. Which do we see evidence of that being true, that it's a lie? Not really. Klingon space and Federation space right. border each other. And there's always kind of border conflict. So I'm guessing when he's saying this, we come in peace, that that's their, you know, diplomatic parties arrive. That's what they say. And then they just are slowly pushing that territory back. You know, that they're taking like Klingon, like vassal planets from them. We don't have any evidence of that in in the show, though. If we go just by the evidence we're shown. I mean, maybe he's referring to some sort of the Federation did do. Just from this show, we have no evidence of that other than their quick betrayal of their ideals. 
Yes, but I mean, they do give the Klingons multiple opportunities to not fight. And the Klingons continually choose fight. The argument could be made that they are still engaged in the battle with the Klingon. The battle has not ended at this point. The Star Trek world is really idealistic. And then Starfleet Command is always super corrupt and dangerous. I mean, that's always a theme that that happens in the, the series. So when you start to see these officers start betraying some of the ideals of the Federation to win these battles, that fits in with kind of the way that some things work. Okay, that's some good insight there, because I was just like, this isn't what Star Trek is about, oh my god. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> if you watch The Next Generation or Deep Space Nine, they really drive those points home. Yeah, Deep Space Nine for sure. Of the little classic series that I've seen, this is a much less utopian vision. Mm-hmm. Yes. Which makes it more realistic, I guess. It also applies to the look and feel of the show and of the ships. I'm used to the next generation, the, the episodes that I've seen, it's all beige and gray, like pale mm-hmm. colors. Mm-hmm. And then in the modern movies and the like since 2009 movies, those are all bright white Apple Store bridges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a way, both the look and tone of this series remind me a lot of the Alien franchise as yes. opposed to the Star Trek yes. franchise. Yeah, especially in episode three. That sense that space is dangerous, Mm -hmm. that's definitely from aliens. That sense of the high command or the corporation or whatever that is giving you your orders not being entirely truthful or upfront about what they're doing. Those are all very alien themes. Yeah, that you're just being manipulated by the higher powers or higher authorities and that you're expendable. So now that the ship is disabled, that they've managed to blow up part of it it's now apparently the shields came down or something that's weak enough that they could now just beam aboard and the plan is for burnham and giorgio to capture takovma and bring him back as a prisoner boarding party that goes bad they they don't do that thing they do a different thing which is worse it goes very poorly <laughs> much worse So, so much worse. Way worse. (laughs) Instead of capturing him somehow in the battle, it's like hand-to-hand combat situation. Giorgio gets hella stabbed. Right in the heart. By a bat lift. Just right in the old ticker. She gets quigonjined. Or maybe in where uh, Ben stabs Han through the heart with the lightsaber. Very similar looking Don't remind me. That's the worst moment of my life. Oh. (laughs) Oh, my sweet summer child. And in revenge... Seemingly, Michael, she must have at some point switched her phaser from stun to kill because she... It shows it. Yeah, you can see in that moment when it, after she is stabbed, when it switches back to Michael. It shows her click it over and then bam. Right, she deliberately kills, kills Takovma. Interesting because she, when her logic is in control of her, she warns them not to do this. This is exactly what he wants. But when her emotions are the dominant force, she ignores all of that. And she has this deep well of anger and emotion that she she has this more so than other humans, potentially. she mm-hmm, Because she's suppressing it. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't go to the Logic Council for emotional counseling and trauma advice. I think that they are probably a particularly bad place. That's not how human <laughs> brains work well. It works for Vulcans. Yeah, so I'm wondering if that may be a theme later on, that she doesn't know how to deal with her emotions as a human. Might be interesting. So, I mean, Vulcans feel emotions just as much, if not more so, than any other race. Like, Romulans are Vulcans. They're the same race. So all of these almost like martial arts meditation techniques that Vulcans have to suppress their logic, that's not natural to them. So not naturally an mm-hmm. emotion. Interesting. So maybe they're thinking that those techniques could also work for humans, but seems like only sometimes. It's interesting that they gave a female character 
an arc in a sort of emotional story that in a lot of cases in a lot of other shows would be a male story. Oh, yeah. And she starts out confident and she's overly risk-taking and she's really sure of her own judgment and her own intelligence. And she's brought low by her hubris and her internal struggle is that she has these cultures within her warring and she's pushing down her emotions and suppressing them and then they explode. Uh, that all sounds pretty traditionally male narrative. Mm-hmm. Like when I was watching this, I felt like this role could have been written for a man and then just switched the casting to a woman with no changes to it. Is that a good thing? I I would say in this case, yeah. I think it's good. I think so. A well-written character should be well-written either way. The struggling with emotion. I mean, she is kind of taking more of a quote-unquote masculine kind of suppress it and rah, and it's not quite working out. I mean, there is something to be said for dealing with femininity and the struggles with patriarchy and, and this and that but i mean maybe that is out of place in in starfleet in star trek at this point in history because we got female captains everywhere you know yeah mm-hmm. in the star trek universe supposedly they're post racism post sexism post class post money right. all of mm-hmm. these things not issues for them anymore i don't know how much that actually is true like next generation that was completely true deep space nine people are still people so they all have different takes on it. so we'll have to see how that develops throughout the series we're only through two episodes and a ton of stuff has happened. And I feel like every little step in the plot is worth analyzing and worth pouring over. So let's go back to war yes. crime right quick. <laughs> <laughs> because when that happened, Chris and I were watching it together, you know, because we're married and we live together. We were both yelling so much about the war crime <laughs> that we missed something. Yeah, I think we might have missed the next couple lines of dialogue. See, that didn't even occur to me. Yeah, and we like even looked it up like at the time. It was like, yeah, there's an article in the Geneva Convention that specifically addresses that. And then in the next episode, she cites the Geneva Convention. Yeah. yeah. They're not ignorant of the questions they're raising. They're not raising them by accident. You know, it's no coincidence that they bring up the Geneva Convention after a battle and things have happened that violate that. Nobody's like, hey, that's kind of wrong. That's against protocol. They're like, no, teleport a bomb onto a body. That's totally cool. There's a part where they're kind of talking about maybe the duality here of Starfleet. They're in the standoff situation before all the firing and bombs happen and all of that. The captain of the Shinzo is talking about how she hopes that this will be a bridge between their two races and like open up a dialogue and all of that. And Michael Burnham says, that's the diplomat talk. What does the soldier say? Yes. Yeah. What does the soldier say? It's nothing good. You know, so a Starfleet officer is both. So now everybody's mad. Especially at Michael. The Klingons are mad at the Federation, which to be fair, they were mad before. Yeah. The Federation is mad at the Klingons and Starfleet is mad at Michael. And so is everybody else. Yes. Everybody hates Michael. Right. Which, that pissed me off. Well, she's the scapegoat. And not so much a scapegoat in that she actually did instigate the situation. Not really. She, it depends on what you consider the instigating incident. The mutiny itself didn't do anything. I guess she took Takumva's bait. Yes, she did kill Takuva. Or if you want to take the dark situation, what happened, and this is me reading between the lines. Yeah. There was a mutineer on the ship. All of these questionable activities you're talking about are because of her and her mutiny. The good Starfleet officers did not do 
these things. The press or some fake news, someone somewhere must space have media. blamed her. The mutiny was not the cause of the war and it wasn't the cause of the Europa being destroyed. No. Which they accuse her of in the third episode. You could argue that her killing Takumva. She didn't make it worse. I was getting the sense that they weren't specifically referring to her killing Takumba as she being the one who started all of this. I mean, she was the one who insisted on space jetpacking over to explore the invisible ship. They were already in the trap at that point. They're linking the mutiny to the war. They're saying you mutinied and that is what caused the war. Weird part for me was you almost got the sense that the people involved, the people who were actually there and knew about it, knew the true event, they bought into it too. Saru mainly and and Michael herself seem to be in agreement that it's her fault, which I thought was a little weird. Well, does anybody actually say that you started the war? Because I think it's just, it might just be that she mutinied. The captain of the Discovery says, you started a war, don't you want to help me end it? Right. And also prisoners on the transport with her directly accuse her of being at fault for those thousands of deaths. Right. Which she wasn't. She just wasn't. Yeah, because I think they also mention in there that she is the first mutineer that Starfleet has ever had. And I'm going to call BS on that. There is no way that is possible that she is the only mutineer in all of Starfleet history up to this point. I mean, Starfleet has lots of protocols built in to kind of guard against that kind of stuff. But I mean, that's protocols don't always work, right? Maybe she's just the only one that got caught. This is the most recent Star Trek thing we've heard. So saying there's no mutineers sounds kind of weird. But in the timeline, it's the beginning, you know, so. So episode three is six months after all this has taken place. And they're on a, a space shuttle transporting from one prison to the to another. And they get attacked by something. Some organism is consuming mm-hmm. their power. That's a very classic. Star Trek. Yeah. It's a known variable and the the pilot goes out to fix it. The pilot dies. Mm -hmm. uh, They're about to die. And then we have another deus ex tractor beam light of the angels descending from heaven onto them to save them. And this time it's the discovery, which they said the thing. Discovery. (laughs) Take a drink. She was never supposed to be on the discovery in the first place. It's an accident that she's there or so the show wants us to question. Initially leads you to believe, yeah. It's a big question mark about whether that was somehow engineered or not. So she is on the discovery and once again, everyone hates her, despite the fact that as we discussed, she didn't necessarily cause the war. Everyone thinks she did. She gets attacked in the canteen. Her roommate hates her once she finds out who she is. She just, in general, just sucks to be Michael. I feel like they kind of let that prisoner attack happen. Oh, they absolutely did. It was explicit. The security guys stand up to stop it and they wave them off. The head of security, that horrible woman, waves them down and says, no, no, let this happen. Wasn't she in Battlestar Galactica? I think she was a Cylon in Battlestar. Oopsie, spoilers. They have a almost like a born identity prison fight with a food tray as a weapon with like the Vulcan martial arts. Oh, yeah. It was pretty cool. She was good. Atomic blonde fight scene. She does some very bone cracky sounding moves. Vulcan martial arts look a lot like Krav Maga, which would make sense if you're logically trying to end the fight in the fastest, most efficient manner. Now we're into sort of the series proper. We start to meet the second half of the cast that's going to become our series regulars, including the captain of the Discovery, Captain Lucius Malfoy. (laughs) Jason Isaacs, a.k.a. every British bad guy. (laughs) Oh, my God. Jason Isaacs, apparently when he does an American accent, and he's trying to do a Southern accent a little bit. Jason Isaacs doing an American accent, to me, looks and sounds exactly like Dustin Hoffman. (laughs) 
<laughs> You're right. One point of trivia that I found absolutely hilarious was every captain has a catchphrase in the Star Trek universe. <laughs> and originally, Jason Isaacs thought that a good catchphrase for his Southern uh, captain character would be get her done, which the writers absolutely said no. <laughs> That's a white trash make it so. So he's Captain what Gabriel Lorca, right? Captain Lorca. Later on, he has an eye injury that requires him to be in mood lighting 24-7. And he even calls it out he's like i think it makes me more mysterious and michael's just standing there like (laughs) we also meet anthony rapp as lieutenant paul stamets who is a science officer specializing in astromycology which is the study of space fungus and anthony rapp is near and dear to my heart as one of the original cast of rent and i have seen him portray roger twice in person Yes, that's where I recognize him. He's very good. He sings too, y'all. The science officer is actually the first openly gay character in the Star Trek TV series. And we actually meet his relationship that he has. And they're having like conversations over the communication. And and what I've heard is as the series goes on, you're going to see flashbacks of their relationship. Star Trek doesn't usually feature this many mangled corpses. That was more gore than I ever expected. Yeah, that was space horror, body horror. Again, with the body horror in these shows that we watch. And just blood. I'm not used to blood. Space is deadly and wants you dead. They really drive that home. Yeah, Yeah, this is definitely where the alien part comes in. We are introduced to not only the science officer, Paul Stamets, who, by the way, is named after a real mycologist in real life who presumably doesn't actually think you can teleport via fungus. You take the right fungus and you'll end up believing you can do that. And I'll tell you, when the original series came out, and even when Next Generation came out, the stuff they were doing was crazy. And now you can take out your cell phone and look at early examples of cell phones that they're using. So, yep. Trek has always pushed the science boundary. That's true. They had iPads before anybody else. Mm -hmm. So we're introduced to the project that they are working on, which is a mysterious plant-related, maybe a weapon, she thinks, maybe some kind of shady war activity. She breaks into a restricted area using her roommate's saliva. Gross. Yeah, that was pretty gross. It's a breath scanner to get in there instead of like a retinal scanner, which I thought was a little weird. It was a little weird. It was an opportunity for her to, you know, use biometrics without having to take somebody's (laughs) eye out of their face. So appreciate that. That's true. I do appreciate that. I mean, she's an anti-hero, but that's beyond the pale. Yeah. So they've uncovered this this mushroom experiment thing, but then there's that disabled ship. Their sister ship, the Glen, has been destroyed, and they don't know why, so they send an away party to investigate. And for some reason, Lorca, Captain Lorca, thinks it's a great idea to send the once-in-a-generation mutineer prisoner on the away party with his crew. Which, to be fair, the rest of the boarding team were like, what? Why are you doing this? He was originally the one who said, send Burnham. And then Anthony Rapp's character was like, no, why? And then he says, Saru, you worked with her. What do you think? And he says, well, before she mutinied, she was the smartest officer I had ever worked with. Yeah, so she is the smartest Starfleet officer I've known. There's that sick burn where he's like, and he knows you. And he knows you. She goes with them. And I was at this point thinking that maybe they were trying to do like a funny, the redhead, instead of having a red shirt, we have a redhead who's the roommate. (laughs) She's going to be the cannon fodder. (laughs) That would have been really funny. That hadn't occurred to me, but that is 
Interesting. Yeah. She didn't end up. She's going to be a series regular. She did not end mm-hmm. up dying. When they did beam down, I did quickly pause it and look to see if any of them were wearing the red uniform. It doesn't seem like they really separate out the colors yet in this one. The only thing that's different is the science officers have silver borders on their Navy uniforms and the everybody else has gold. Which you gotta say, speaking of uniforms, they're way better. And didn't some people have black badges? They're like a black ops. I mean, spoiler. They're the off the books black ops ship. We think. Probably. Yeah. So but their uniforms uh, were awesome and looked good and were flattering. So that's yet another, why did we move backwards? <laughs> Yeah, I love the navy and gold is very in right now. Yes. So cool. Yeah, the overall design of the show just looks really good. Like you can see these are expensive episodes. Like each episode has a budget between somewhere between six and seven million dollars. Nice. It looks like you're looking at a blockbuster movie up on the screen. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, it looks good. The special effects, the set, everything is top-notch. It's a very prestige TV-era version of Star Trek. Nothing about it feels sort of chintzy. And we also don't get the Monster of the Week episodes that we would see a lot of times in previous series. There is one plot line that's running through all of this, yeah. It's one big story, one big mystery that they're going to play out over the entire season, theoretically. So they're on this away mission, and they find a bunch of people pieces all over the ship, just sort of around. They're just sort of twisted around themselves. Mm-hmm. And of course, all the lights have gone out and are sort of flickering. Mm. And- Good thing they have space flashlights. <laughs> just very spooky. And gravity. That's true. The gravity is still on. And the air. They're not in suits. So they're exploring this destroyed spaceship, trying to figure out why. They see Klingon bodies. They see human bodies. And then they are attacked by an unknown creature. At least I'm assuming it's unknown. I've never seen it before. The- looks so much better than your normal Star Trek monsters. Yeah. Well, at first I was like, that's a xenomorph. <laughs> I'm going to lose my mind. <laughs> it really ties into that whole, this is a lot like Alien. So that's definitely not supposed to be something that we like recognize. And I think that the action sequence here that you get is really tense where you've got the chase taking place through like really tight yeah. confined places with mm-hmm. you know the monster almost literally at your heel classic so you get that sense of danger that's going on you've seen what the monster can do and then there's still thinking though in solving the problem it's almost literally almost exactly like the end of Empire Strikes Back with the patch that opens and you fall onto the ship that's passing underneath and then also she's reciting Alice in Wonderland to herself as she crossed through yeah that was really cool it was interesting i liked it but at the same time i was like this seems a little out of place you get the sense that it sort of predates her vulcan upbringing well she says that that's the story her human mother which is spock's mother read Mm -hmm. her which is kind of the logic doesn't always work story so burnham saves everyone through knowing the ship plan really well i guess yeah i think so yeah she says all ship layouts are the same Hopes it is anyway. <laughs> and then once they're back on the Discovery, Captain Lorca now is offering her, presumably because of her heroism on the away mission, is offering her a spot on his crew. Which, can he do that? Is that a thing? You can just say, oh, you were sentenced to life in prison, but instead you can just be not in prison anymore. I have a feeling that he can do a lot of things that a normal officer can't. He's running a black ops organization here, mm-hmm. and he's been given the authority by Starfleet to do essentially whatever it takes to accomplish his yeah. mission. 
So should he be able to do it? No. He's French foreign legioning it. Yeah. Yes. They'll disavow any, uh, you know, knowledge of this, but. And wipe the slate clean if you agree to join this mission. Which is why no one talks about what happened in any of this <laughs> in future series. Yeah, good cover up. So he offers her a spot on the crew. She kind of resists it. And then in response, he just tells her. He just tells her what the secret is. Just straight up. Here's what we're doing. Reveals the plan to, to use this microscopic network of fungus spores, I think is how they described it, to teleport. Instant transportation or like within seconds transportation across vast areas of space, which would totally change the game in the war against the Klingons. Which it would totally change the game in a lot of ways. But for Lorca, the important part is that it would win the war. Right. Well, and then he kind of, to make it not just a war plan, he tells her, think of all the possibilities once the war is over. Trying to appeal to both sides of her. And then he says quantum mechanics and waves his fingers. And that's how science works, you guys. (laughs) (laughs) And then, of course, after that is revealed, she decides... To stay. The end. To be continued. So far. That's a hell of a three episode arc. Yeah, yeah. They crammed a lot of plot and a lot of character development into just three, not even an hour long episodes. I think it was done really well for like having just so much stuff like we're kind of nitpicking but yeah like it it kind of works good job not only did they back up the bus full of characters and plot and all of that this is what makes it star trek and not just space adventure there are moral questions that are taking place there's interesting science that's going on yeah i think that that is what brings it into the star trek universe these problems are not going to be solved through force necessarily we have a lot more conflict between the crew members of both of the ships both of the main ships that we see, which used to be apparently a thing they weren't supposed to do. Like we have Anthony Rapp's character, science officer Mark, Paul Stamets is his actual name. He is constantly sort of berating Michael for just existing, even though she's asking questions that she totally needs answers to. He calls her like a criminal, like space temp. (laughs) (laughs) why would i tell you anything that you would need to know to do your job so it's just a totally different tone than i think a lot of star trek fans are used to which it sounds like it's not something that people are going to be all that upset about because they did it so well i think it's done really well and i feel like this still takes place in the star trek universe but it expands our focus like the camera like pulls out and we see parts of the star trek universe we haven't seen i still feel like we're in Star Trek. It's definitely a bit of a different take on it. Yeah, and it's just more like a modern TV show. Yes. Like you were mentioning that there's one continuous plot that runs throughout this first season. The characters are complex and dark and conflicted. This is much more like modern TV. They definitely made it so that it could compete in an era of peak TV, which is surprising for a CBS show because I don't watch any other CBS shows. And the image I have of that network in my head is the lowest common denominator shows. I do want to ask, this is sort of a meta question, to watch this show, you have to sign up for at minimum a $6 a month streaming service. Does it feel worth it? That's the question. That cuts right to the heart of it, right? Guess we'll kind of see what other shows they can add to this service, because I don't know if it's worth it just for the one show. So there is one thing that network TV can do that other streaming services can't do, which is live sport. And I know you guys probably are not that into those kind of things, but you do get football. Okay. Okay. You know what? Yeah. 
Okay. We're all patting you on the head right now with, okay, yeah. I'm serious. I can see the appeal. I was kind of worried about the success of the show because it's on this platform. Because, you know, you have to pay six bucks a month. I don't really want to pay six bucks a month to watch Star Trek, but I do know a lot of people who can and do pay a lot more than six bucks a month to watch football. So if it's got football, it's This Is America. So there's a chance. I would say this. If you look at the back catalog that's on there, they have a lot of stuff. Now, some of that stuff is redundant if you have Netflix, Hulu, like those kind of services. But if you don't, there's a lot. There's probably well over 100 shows that have every episode on there. So, And they're pulling all of their intellectual property off of other services and sticking it on here. Ugh. See, this is the future of cord cutting streaming services is it's all going to be siloed. Disney's doing the same thing. Mm. We're going to be paying just as much money as we used to with cable for 12 different streaming services, which sucks. Which means, you know, we're going to illegally stream them. Sorry, guys. Stealing cable. Possibly. But on the other hand, it does mean that you get to kind of pick and choose a little bit more where you can like, I don't want these shows, so I'm just not going to sign up for that service. It's more like you can build your own cable package, you know? You're not paying, you're paying more per sort of quote unquote channel than you would be with a cable package. Truth. I mean, we're kind of answering a question before we ask it, but I would say if you decide not to pay to stream this and you don't want to get it illegal, when it comes out on DVD or Blu-ray, buy that shit and watch it because it's real good. Yes. Yeah. You can also, they offer a one week free trial, which is how I watched it. You can sign up, you can wait till the whole thing's like the first season is over and then sign up for the free trial and watch it all in one week. I bet they're going to do a thing where they only show the last like five. Yep. Oh yeah, they might. Rate it and then we can answer maybe this question that we've raised when we get to the, should I watch this? I'm going to give it four out of five unflattering prison jumpsuit. I don't know. I was kind of into it. (laughs) (laughs) I like their regular uniforms. It's the prison jumpsuits that are just not. But it still works better than the next generation uniforms the first season. So, Which apparently were quite awful to wear and stunk to high heaven. Gross. I'm going to give it four out of five really big, obvious lens flares. <laughs> I mean, the beacon is basically just a giant lens flare. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I will give it four Starfleet war crimes out of five. I will give it 4.75. The Klingon Empire is better at solving racism than the Federation. <laughs> Oh, snap. I don't know, because they do still seem to be having some conflict about it. Yeah, and the Federation didn't have any. So there's an original series episode called Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. That's kind of the famous one where you have the people have the half black face, half white face. Uh-huh. And then the, the, they're switched to which uh, side is what, and they are in this war with each other. And the Federation isn't able to solve their conflict and ends up basically beaming them down to a planet to like fight to the death and they sail off. <laughs> Damn. Hmm. The Klingons, they have that one dude who's like the albino, and through their, you know, religious fanaticism, they're able to unite the people together. And so It's something we should all aspire to. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. The religious fanaticism? <laughs> Washing aside our differences through religious fanaticism and war. And David caressing yourself. (laughs) Exactly. Big question. Should I watch this? I think we're all agreed on this one. Yeah, I would definitely say you should watch it. Watch it. Yes. Make it so. Oh, nice. But should you watch it for $6 a month? Mm, 
I would say yes. If it was just $6 a month for this show, no. But I think with football, you get something of value there that if you're streaming, you don't have an option for. I'd say check it out and see if there are other things on the streaming service that you want aside from just Star Trek. And if so, then go ahead. Oh, The Good Wife. Yeah, like football or The Good Wife or whatever. Figure out what's the most you would pay for a show per month. Is that a dollar, two dollars, three dollars? I don't know what it is. And then see if you can find enough shows to break that six dollars down equal that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we're not voting on shows anymore. We're rotating through. And Hannah, you have the next show. What is that? Big Mouth is an animated sitcom created by Nick Kroll. It's about puberty. And apparently it's supposed to be, I make that sound like the Disney movie about puberty. Which it's it's a very special episode. Ten very special episodes about puberty. It's about adolescence and development and how that awkward, weird time in everybody's life. This is still going back into puberty. Very special show territory. Shit. It's sort of a not quite a coming of age story, but like a um, becoming a teenager story. It has a lot of funny people in it. I'm excited. I could use a laugh. We're going to be heading into a lot of horror in October. So this is kind of nice to give us a little break before all that happens. Fred Armisen, some Maya Rudolph, some Ginny Slate, some John Mulaney. Nick Kroll and John Mulaney, if you haven't seen it, they did a, it was originally on Broadway. I actually saw it on Broadway last December called Oh Hello. It was originally a segment of Kroll's show. I'll let you watch it. I'm not going to describe it, but it's very funny. And I think it's on Netflix now. Oh, and Jordan Peele's in it. The two of them are also starring in this show. So they have a rapport that's really funny. So that was Star Trek Discovery. You can find all kinds of nerd shenanigans, including our other podcast, Four Color Nerds Comic Book Reviews, at fourcolornerds.com or our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Be sure to rate. And subscribe. We'll be back next week for another episode. Until then, keep streaming, nerds. Bye. Bye. Live long and prosper. I'm doing the hand thing, but this is only audio, so you can't see it. If if you do it really (laughs) close to the microphone, it'll pick up the vibration.